You are in the ring with Hector Talon, seven-time national boxing champion turned nonprofit president and CEO. Hector knocks out the big issues facing social services today with high-impact leaders from around the U.S. In the Ring is a creation of Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan and is produced by No Studios. And now, here's Hector Colon. Hello, 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 and welcome to In the Ring with Hector Colon, the show that gets real about the challenges facing the social services sector and the people we serve. I'm so grateful to the wisdom I gained from my season one interviews with thought leaders from across the country addressing the challenges to serve our colleagues, our clients, and ensuring the financial viability of our sector. You can check out all of our interviews at lsswis.org slash in the ring. I hope these conversations spark awareness and they serve as inspiration to all of those connected in our sector. This year, we're going to dig into the punching power of our sector, highlighting the many ways that thought leaders and their organizations are knocking out these challenges and moving their organizations forward. Subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, so you don't miss any of these important conversations in the future. And thank you to our In The Ring sponsor, M3. We are so appreciative of, of your partnership your sponsorship, and all you do for LSS and so many organizations across our country. Okay, as my coach Shorty used to say, let's go, champ. In the ring with me today is Jill Chafee, Vice President of Community-Based Services for Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan. Welcome, Jill. Thank you, Hector. Um, I've never been in the ring before, so this will be fun. <laughs> There's always, there's always a first. Thank you so much for being with me here today. Jill Chafee started at LSS in 2018, which was really a critical time uh, in our organization's history, where we were in the early stages of a five-year, $18 million operational turnaround. Her 24 years of experience in human services, both as a social worker and as an administrator, helped transform the way LSS delivers our community-based services today. She's an expert in program development and manages statewide services. Jill leans on her experience to serve approximately 400 colleagues. Her areas of focus are mental health services, substance use disorder treatment, foster care, public adoption, various facilitation and care coordination programs. Jill received her bachelor's of arts and master's of social work degrees from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. She has a passion for meeting people where they are with the right services in their community. Jill is a servant leader. She's super passionate about her work and she is a great human being. I'm so honored that I have the opportunity to work with her here at LSS. Okay, Jill, are you ready for round one? I am absolutely ready. Good. Jill, we are seeing more um, co-occurring mental illness and addiction uh, within the people that we serve uh, in our communities. And historically, these conditions have been treated separately in isolation of one another, which I know uh, is a big problem. Uh, so why don't we start off with talking a little bit about the trends that you're seeing in treatment and support 
you are seeing uh, in our work to better support individuals experiencing both mental health and substance use disorders. Absolutely, Hector. Um, yeah, this has been a, a time in my career that I haven't seen previously. I think there have been a ton of positive changes over time. And today, I would say some of our big trends and changes are moving from maybe some of the traditional formats of treatment for folks. And when I say traditional, I mean like the medical model, very structured in the office between the hours of eight and five. And although I think it really brings some positive things for the people we serve, it also creates some complexity in terms of some of our workforce challenges. One of them being uh, certain that people can work the hours that people need them to work. And so that shift is a significant one. In addition, in general, we have seen uh, real challenges with having the number of people to provide the services. And I think that comes out of two things. Um, first, there's increased recognition of the need for professionals in the mental health and substance use areas. And in, in addition to that, it's, um, it's hard work. Uh, some of the folks, you know, we're, we are challenged by a number of different things uh, as people are learning more about their mental health and learning about their substance use. So uh, in addition to some of those professionals, we're also seeing peer support, which I think has been an excellent addition in the field. Yet it is addition, an addition that is not fully funded across the board at this point. Um, it certainly is well-funded in some services for some folks, but that peer support, what I mean by that is people with lived experience who, because of those experiences, get some additional education around, um, you know, just general uh, boundaries and how to uh, not uh, go into relapse yourself when you are working with clients or people with similar needs to your own and be able to manage that. And so really we've got several factors at play today. And those include, as I said, the movement away from the traditional forms or the medical model forms of treatment, the addition of peer supports. Um, I would also say just the overall addition of uh, recognition, I should say, versus addition recognition of the integration, not only of mental health and substance use, but also with our physical health, seeing a person as a whole person. And so really moving from the professional saying, I think I know what you need to a person or family-centered approach with individualized care, where the person in need and, the, and or the family in need leads their treatment. We meet them where they are, which may be not necessarily where the professionals might believe they should be. And so really trying to work with folks in that direction. And last but not least, we need to start looking at prevention. And some of that movement toward the prevention has been just critical um, to make things, uh, we're really trying to interrupt generational cycles and be in a position where uh, we can prevent some of the more intensive and long-term challenges that sometimes people face uh, with mental health or substance use. Thank you, Jill. And uh, we want to get into prevention, but before we get into prevention, I want to come back to this workforce issue. Uh, clearly, 
right now there's a shortage of workers. And then um, we also have the complexity of some of these jobs, you know, they're, they're highly stressful jobs and they require individuals to work sometimes uh, more hours than uh, maybe they're, they're comfortable with. And, and so, um, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to recruit. Uh, there's not enough bodies out there today. And it's a challenge to retain. And I know you talked about the peer specialist as another added very positive element uh, to the workforce, specifically to serve individuals with some of these challenges. Uh, but could you share a little bit about how these trends, workforce trends, uh, have been impacting the overall health uh, of the people we serve? Gosh, access is a critical issue. Um, if we don't have the workforce and the people to serve people um, as quickly as they need with the right service and the right amount at the right time, it really does influence our ability to serve them quickly. And one thing you want to be thoughtful around with uh, access is people are still living their life as they maybe are on a wait list or maybe, you know, their child is when they first make the referral in kindergarten. And you think about these different pieces that we want to pull together um, and looking at the whole person in that if you have too much delay in treatment or it's not the right service at the right time, you may be missing opportunities to allow for the other areas of development to continue as they typically would. And so one of the things we want to be thoughtful around is uh, just really thinking about how do we get that access improved? How do we make sure that people in the point where they have a need, they're getting the service, and then they're getting more structured services quickly. Uh, and this is for a long time, we've struggled with the issue of psychiatry shortage. Throughout our country, um, we've had some real challenges with uh, having enough access to psychiatry. And I'll, I'll differentiate for you. Psychiatrists are medical doctors who provide medications. We provide oftentimes therapists, which have their master's degree, uh, treatment providers for substance use who are specially trained. And so we really are doing some things around trying to address compensation trying to think about how do we incentivize the non-traditional forms of treatment and the impact if we don't do those things on some of our clients can be significant. And we really don't want to have that lack of access interrupt other things that would help a person continue to develop typically throughout their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, when we talk about access, you know, we know that individuals might have health care, uh, specifically uh, Medicaid, and many of these individuals are having troubles finding a provider, sometimes well up to a year. And if somebody is in crisis right now, they need those services. So it's a great thanks to organizations like LSS who serve individuals without insurance or with Medicaid. Absolutely. And I think some of the challenges are just keeping people in our workforce. Um, as you said, Hector, the, the difficulties associated with some of our work, oftentimes you're not prepared 
maybe from our educational institutions in terms of some of the practical aspects of the things that we do. And so one of the things that we've been talking with um, as an organization and with our employees about is the wellness piece and how do we keep people, even if they are not always at LSS, how do we work with partners to say, gosh, we want you to stay in this profession because, and, and there's a lot of different types of services within our profession. So for example, I also oversee children's long-term support, which is develop children with developmental needs. Um, and so it really, there's a lot of opportunities for different things and we really wanna compensate people well, and we want to ensure that they are staying in our profession. Uh, in order to make sure we have enough services as the volume of people needing services. I don't know if it's growing as much as we are, have become more aware of it. Thank you, Jill. And I got one last question, and we just yeah. have about a, a minute for this one. If you could just briefly uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the latest brain science and how this helps us uh, better understand and address the overall health needs uh, of the individuals we serve. Absolutely, Hector. So many, I mean, as you said, I've been doing this for over 20 years and I've seen so many positive changes in terms of awareness and our knowledge and the research around how our brains respond to if we have or how brains look different in scans for someone who maybe has experienced significant trauma or someone who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia or major depression, or after use of certain substances, how that alters our brains and how they function. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things we can do. We absolutely, the brain is a powerful tool and it heals. So that's a positive, but that science has just been incredible for us and a great learning experience to help us uh, bring about more evidence-informed practices and evidence-based practices that really demonstrate that mental health and substance use is much more a part of a human than a lifestyle. And so really making that switch, and I think the science has helped us to do that tremendously. All right, Jill, that completes round one. You did a, you did great. Uh, in round two, I, Jill and I will discuss. Well, I just want to know: who, or Do we have any scores on that one, Hector? Who's who's leading? You know, you might got a 10-9 round on that one. I think you, I think you did really well. So uh, you're much more experienced. So I'll give you a ten. Good, 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 good. No, thank you, thank you. Uh, so in round two, I will discuss. Uh, Jill and I will discuss the biggest barriers in our systems that hinder our progress towards our whole health approach. But first, a word from our sponsor. Supporting your employees is more than a paycheck and 401k. It's just a fact. People today are at a higher risk of experiencing mental illness, housing insecurity, and substance abuse. Do you know the health of your employees, your communities? How can you step up your benefits? to better address their well-being. M3 Insurance helps businesses see beyond basic benefits and support employees where they live. It's a meet them where they are approach that LSS delivers to their clients every day. M3 and LSS offer real solutions to now commonplace realities that strengthen employees 
and inspire communities to thrive. Test your employee benefit strategy now by going to m3ins.com. All right. Are you ready for round two? I'm ready. Good. We're going to talk a little bit more about system barriers that we touched upon um, in the first round, but we talked about access. Access is is a big issue uh, for a lot of the individuals that we serve, individuals on Medicaid, um, affordable health care, uh, transportation, food, uh, medical care. All of these, there are lots of barriers that um, really make it hard for the individuals we serve to have better access and better health because of these uh, barriers. So, Jill, why don't you start off by sharing with us a little bit about how these system barriers affect people who have mental health or substance use disorders uh, challenges? Yes. um, I think the difference, I would say, Hector, is there's a couple of factors that make it more complex and challenging for people with mental health or substance use needs. One being that you're compromised in terms of your your processes, your thinking, and sometimes having to work hard at getting access to an appointment, calling several different places. Um, In addition to the stigma that is often associated with accessing these services, and the separation of them. So there's also this separateness that we have between physical health and mental health. And sometimes it's also, um, do you go to the county for this service? Where do I get this service? Can I, is this a service I need to go to the county for or do I go to a private sector? Can I get it at the same place as my healthcare or do I need to go to another specific specialized uh, clinics for mental health or substance use? So that level of complexity, in addition to the challenges for folks who are often the working poor, um, people who have maybe don't qualify for Medicaid, um, but maybe working two jobs or you know just above that hundred percent of the poverty level, and they they still have to fund part of their coverage, and so they might really think to themselves, okay, my choices are, do I buy the groceries I need this week or or rent is coming up and how do I fund that in addition to the additional cost of my mental health or substance use services per my deductible per se? Um, Because a lot more people are covered than they used to be. However, there is still that cost of your deductible, your coinsurance, those factors. And so if you're feeling depressed and already struggling to maybe get out of bed or to parent your fa- your children or to uh, engage in the community, and now you have an appointment that you need to make and attend, or maybe your job doesn't offer you um, time off with pay to attend your appointments. And so those kind of things add a layer of complexity for folks who have mental health and substance use needs uh, that really do complicate how they access services and their their energy around accessing those services because sometimes it doesn't feel positive as they do that. 
Yeah. Thank you, Jill, for bringing up uh, some of these challenges and and specifically relating to stigma. Stigma has always been a challenge. People don't want to come forward and, and say they're experiencing these challenges. And and some communities might say, well, you know, they might treat them differently because of those challenges that they have. Um, it does seem like things are getting better on, on the stigma front. And I'd say, especially during uh, and after COVID, um, do you agree with that? Do you think things are, are, are getting better on that front? And and share with me a little bit about either your optimism or 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 not as it relates to uh, the stigma issue. I would say absolute optimism. I believe that, yeah, absolutely, COVID helped people identify that mental health is part of all of us. It always has been. I think it brought to the forefront the ice, the impact of isolation for a number of folks, and in addition to that, one in five people experience mental health with challenges throughout their life. And so it's happening. Any room where there's five people at least one person in that room could be having those challenges. And so I think um, the other thing that I've noticed generationally, which I think is a huge positive, is it's become more talked about, uh, especially with younger generations and more comfort with it, which I think is a, a big part of helping to uh, have people feel comfortable addressing their needs. And so I am absolutely optimistic without question. Thank you, Jill. How about these barriers that we talked about, you know, stigma, uh, thinking, being compromised, uh, you know, county versus private? Uh, are these uh, barriers similar or different for children? Gosh, um, throughout my career, I've worked with both adults and children, and I have seen so many positive changes around how we think about children. Um, and I think that the challenge we face is everybody has a developmental, a general developmental state, and we all go through very specific stages through life, right? And you're always going to your pediatrician visits to say, is my child on track? And so the hard part with children is they don't early on have the capacity to verbalize their feelings, or maybe even if you've experienced trauma at different stages in your life, or you started using substances at the age of 12, those things are all going to compromise some of your ability to develop emotionally. And with that comes the complexity of us understanding and identifying how to best treat a person. And so there was a time when for children, for example, uh, we would say they're oppositional. They just don't want to follow the rules. And I think uh, what we've discovered is there is a lot more of an anxiety component to a lot of youth. And that anxiety might look like opposition to an adult because what they're trying to do is uh, really take and get some control over what they're feeling internally, but children don't always have the capacity to express that. In addition, children are very much a specialty. And so you talk about, I already talked about the psychiatry shortage, child psychiatry, even more so. And so all of these pieces of the things we want to look at with children are also family systems. So when you're talking about bringing your child in, 
Is your family open to being a little bit vulnerable and having some discussions about, as a parent, what can I do to parent my child in a way to help address their needs? And so um, those things are create some complexity and they're barriers at times for understanding children and getting that right treatment at the right time and the right amount in place. The other critical time period that I would say is the movement from um, adolescence into adulthood. Research demonstrates that oftentimes we might see some of our more serious and persistent mental illnesses like schizophrenia, manic depression, bipolar. Um, those often emerge in that time frame between 18 and 25. And so that would also complicate one's natural development because if you think about it, that's the age where we want to become more independent. We want to separate from maybe our parental figures and become our own person. And as we're doing that, being challenged by a mental health issue may bring you back to a place where maybe you need more support, but you might also be fighting against it for your independence. So always taking into consideration those developmental stages that can sometimes create misunderstanding barriers in the treatment sector that we want to make sure that we're thinking about and we're addressing specifically because of the complexity for those folks at that time. Thank you, Jill. This would be a good segue into the last uh, question for, for this round. Uh, what are the top three uh, program areas that are most in need of funding uh, that will address some of these issues and challenges that we just talked about? Well, certainly we're always in need of thinking about our general mental health and substance use service funding. As our workforce needs have become more complex or have been, we need to pay people more, bottom line. I don't know that there's much complexity to that. The, the pay for the type of work that we're asking folks to do with the education we're asking them to have, but we need the funding to match that. And so always thinking about what are ways that we can um, improve that mental health and substance use funding. School-centered mental health is a great example of something LSS is doing to look at folks, meet children and families where they are. It combines both a family coach and a therapist at the school and really wants to bring in the family and to address children's needs in the school setting as quickly as we possibly can. Another two, I think, key areas for our movement are prevention, movement towards increased education and prevention, and looking at how do we prevent substance use and how is that part of our culture and how do we address that as, uh, as people in the state of Wisconsin and overall. And then early intervention. We see a lot of multi-generational situations that result in uh, Maybe the parent was once traumatized and that unresolved trauma, or maybe uh, they were treated in ways that didn't support the type of parenting that would support positive outcomes for their children. And so really trying to uh, help those parents and families and youth early is so critical uh, because we hear a lot about, you know, it's so um, challenging when a child becomes 13 or 14 and they're the same size as their parent, and maybe they can't express themselves as well emotionally and that may be presenting as acting out 
And so that, then it feels almost like, gosh, it's getting a little late. What could we have done when that child was very young and that parent was a young parent? And how can we reach out to them sooner? I think those are just critical pieces in the program areas that I'd like to see us really focus on funding right now. You know, Joe, you talked about uh, uh, early intervention, uh, prevention. We're going to get into that into the next round. And you also talked about school center mental health. And school center mental health is something that I have brought up uh, and other uh, of my guests have also brought up. And this is a program, you see, today our system is, you wait for a crisis and then we try to intervene. Oftentimes it's too late. Or you wait for the kid to get in the criminal justice system. Uh, It's too costly and and it's too late. So with the school center mental health model, we're getting to kids early um, and their families because the better the family is, the better that child is going to be. So I, I, I'm a big advocate of this program. I think we should have more of it, and we should have more robust funding uh, that will support it. So that completes round two. In round three, we're going to highlight innovations, early intervention, and prevention. Are you ready for round three? I am very ready, Hector. Let's do it. So before we talk about innovation, early intervention and prevention, uh, let's let's go back to workforce. Uh, So what are we doing uh, to address uh, our workforce challenges at LSS? It has not been one thing. It has to be a multi-pronged approach and very strategic. Um, Because of the area that I oversee is all in the community and it does pose some risks for folks as they work in the community. So we don't have a controlled environment like an office where there's some, another person sitting in another office that'll come to our aid if something doesn't go well. We're we're going out, meeting people where they are in their homes and really trying to address some of those risks. But it also requires sometimes that we compensate people a little bit more. And so really trying to shift that model away from If you're in an office, your compensation is better than if you're out in the community into, you know, really working with people where they are. And so looking at that compensation and then in turn, looking at how the rates need to change to truly fund those folks in the community uh, and retain those employees so that we can manage the burnout. LSS, LSS also does a lot of wellness We have currently a strategic project around wellness, teaching people how to um, really improve uh, all aspects of their life and the whole person. Thank you, Jill. And, you know, I'd say that our board, uh, our organization, our leaders, such as yourself, have done a really good job at two things. One is really wanting to work hard to pay our staff commensurate to the value they provide uh, our clients. Uh, our organization, uh, and the people they serve. And we have made significant strides. So thank you for your involvement, your participation, and in, in making that happen. The other thing I think we've been pretty successful at is rate negotiation. And so making sure that we can meet with our partners to articulate to them the value that they provide, the difference we make, and how our colleagues need to be paid an adequate wage to do their jobs uh, well. 
And so thank you for bringing that up and thank you for your leadership on all of that uh, to make sure that we're doing the right thing at LSS, uh, you know, for our, our colleagues as well as the people we serve. Yeah, so, thank you, Hector. Yeah. Shout out to our partners as well. Absolutely. I think they've been awesome. Absolutely. Shout out to the county partners, to the state uh, for recognizing the need and, and supporting us uh, and many other organizations along uh, our journeys. So the next question I want to get into is, how are you shifting the focus from crisis to early intervention and prevention? Um, again, crisis is costly. It's bad outcomes. So what are some of the things we're doing to kind of pivot more towards that early intervention prevention? We're really trying to find ways to incentivize folks to engage in treatment. Um, and I think sometimes there's a perspective or a perception that, you know, isn't it, isn't it, you know, reward enough to just or incentive enough to just be sober or however, if you're a person who has needed to, or, or has used unhealthy coping skills like substances, it might be all that you know. And it takes time to do some of that. So really working to incentivize early, interrupt that generational cycle. We would love to be serving substance parents early, maybe before the child is born or right after the child is born to talk about, okay, what are some parenting things you're going to need as your child grows? And the more we can get that person healthier using healthy coping skills, the more likely it is for us to interrupt those cycles and to not expose the child to additional trauma unknowingly. You know, and I think sometimes historically we have blamed the parents or blamed someone for not doing it the way it should have been done. I always give an example of, you know, if nobody ever said to me, I love you when I was a child, how would I know to do that? And so it's very, very foundational. And we really need to educate people whenever we can fight that stigma. So people want to engage and incentivize participation in early treatment and prevention. Yes, Jill, you know, some of these young parents, some of them are young, right? And some of them have experienced significant trauma in their own lives. And unless they heal and address that personal trauma that they have had, it's going to be difficult uh, for them uh, to be a good parent. So I love when you say, you know, even before that child is born is, is critical to provide education, support, uh, so they can be successful parents. Um, and so that's, that's a right on. And kind of, you know, shifting to the next question, which is related is, you know, we know that we're seeing uh, individuals that have more complex needs um, than we've ever seen in the past on the residential side, on the mental health side, you name it. There, There's just more complexity uh, that we see regarding the individuals that we serve. Could you talk a little bit more about that and how that's impacting us, our service delivery approach uh, to uh, um, to work with these individuals? Absolutely. I think we want to serve folks uh, in the community whenever we can. 
However, when we're seeing some of the challenges later on, it's sometimes it's hard to safely provide the services in the community. And then the question is, how do they get served in residential? And do we have the resources to do that? And so really the complexity comes out of the fact that historically we also talked about, is it mental health? Is it substance use? And all of these separate compartments, is it your physical health? Well, with all of the knowledge that we've gained over the past 20 some years, it's really a gift to realize that a lot of these things um, intertwine with one another. When a person maybe is challenged by anxiety, the use of a substance sometimes helps them to calm down in terms of you know their biology and their physiology. And so really um, it's an unhealthy coping skill, but it's what they've used and it felt good, right? And so all of that complexity is building and without the access, uh, we really are challenged because they might become in the le- part of the legal system. We are doing, you know, counties are doing great things with having mental health courts, uh, substance use courts, uh, having options for people to do things differently. And I think uh, by LSS going into homes, doing it on varied hours when people are available. Those are all going to be things that are going to need to happen early and need to happen so that we can prevent some of that complexity down the road. Jill, are there, you know, you talked about, you know, uh, expand access to more education and support. And but we also talked about how there's a lack of resources to do that effectively. Is there an efficient way? But it's so necessary. So what can we do to expand uh, that education and support. So those that need it most have it. Well, first, I think some things are happening in the medical field with primary care. And I think that's a huge positive. The addition, I think this is a great place for peer support. Peer support is, are people with lived experience who have the education and can provide support. And their awareness of the experience that that other person might be having is critical for that support piece. And so I really think that the expansion of peer support and the funding of it would be a great additional component. And I think primary care is doing a lot to try to improve in that area as well. Yes, I definitely agree. Uh, Again, the use of peer supports, the evidence shows that they're very effective, uh, very efficient as well, and we need more of them. And I'm glad that uh, you and uh, LSS is working along with them to improve the health and well-being of, of the individuals that we serve. So, Jill, that was awesome. We got one final question. Are you ready for it? Okay, uh-huh. I hope I can make this a knockout. How are you going to use your punching power this year to advocate for our sector? Gosh, I would say we need to just continue to strive to deliver the most highly effective and efficient types of services that we possibly can. And we, at the same time, have to advocate for that compensation and reimbursement that's needed to deliver the highly effective and efficient services. And so throughout my career, I have just seen so many positive changes. And I believe that we can continue to make those positive changes. And part of that is really looking at our services in a way and demonstrating our value of them 
through the support of finance, you know, and funding is just critical. Thank you, Jill, so much. Uh, you are such a blessing. You are a huge uh, advocate in our sector, a, uh, a great professional that's making a difference here at LSS and larger Wisconsin and Upper Michigan. You knocked it out today. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Hector. It was fun. All right. That was a great episode. Thank you again so much, uh, Jill. I want to recap some of the good insights that she provided us with. Uh, one uh, was just the workforce challenges. We've talked about this before in some of our other episodes, but it's a real challenge to find people, uh, to retain people, and really to pay them commensurate to the value they provide because the rates are, are so low. So that continues to be a significant barrier in our sector. And uh, I'd say LSS has been at the forefront of vocalizing this challenge and also addressing this challenge along with our partners, which we are so thankful to have them, our, our county contracted partners as well as our donors that really support us to make sure that we can pay our staff commensurate to the value they provide. Jill talked about whole health and how oftentimes mental health and addiction are treated in isolation of each other. So we have to change that. We have to make sure that we address these issues together because when we do that, we will have better overall outcomes. Uh, Jill talked about prevention and how prevention is so important where today, we wait for a crisis to happen. We wait for uh, you know a kid to penetrate the criminal justice system. It's too costly and it's too late. How can we prevent those issues? And Jill shared uh, some good insights about getting to the parent even before that 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 child is born and intervening uh, very quickly. We talked about the brain science. Uh, Jill shared about how important. Uh, the brain is to the development of our children. You know, we talk about trauma-informed care. Individuals that face trauma, their their brains uh, are different, and we have to recognize that, uh, address it, and work with the individuals we serve on their journey with recognition of that brain science. Uh, we talked about stigma, and on the optimistic side is that Stigma has always been a problem uh, for the people we serve. And we both feel, Jill and I both feel that things are getting a little bit better, especially after COVID. People are much more willing to self-disclose, to seek treatment, and uh, get what they need in order to ensure their health and well-being. So that's positive. Uh, we talked about compensation, again, just being an issue, and peer supports. How peer supports is such an important um uh, component in our in our service delivery model to achieve better outcomes with the people we serve. Those individuals, those peer supports are individuals with lived experience. Um, they have had similar challenges. They are a very positive aspect of the service continuum to ensure the health and well-being of the people we serve. So again, uh, thank you, Jill, for your great insights. Um, you can find out more about In the Ring with Hector Colon, our guest episodes on our website at lss.wis slash in the ring. 
Please let us know what you think about this show and what you want to see in future episodes. Like, follow, and share at LSSWIS on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss any of these important conversations in the future. All right. Thank you, Jill. Thank you to our sponsor, M3. Con mucho cariño, with much affection. Bye.